Pablo Alvarado always has a front row seat to economic crises. The first place where you actually feel the implications of a, an economic crisis is at a day laborer corner. The corner, the place where day laborers, often Latino, often immigrant, often undocumented, find employment by the job, usually yard worker construction. And immediately, that they send, the same day that they announce there is an economic downturn, you see the decrease in the number of jobs at the day labor corners. So corners that were getting uh, 30, 35, 20 jobs a day are now getting one, two, three. When you get five, that's, that's a plus. Pablo used to work as a day laborer. Now he's the co-executive director of Endlon, the national day laborer organizing network. Hanging on at the racialized bottom rungs of the American labor market, day laborers, or jornaleros in Spanish, are the canaries in the coal mine of American capitalism, often hired by middle-class families who have disposable income. When there's an economic downturn, families, you know, they become more protective of that disposable income. Day laborers are also the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to anti-immigrant politics. Looking for work on the corners or in Home Depot parking lots, they're highly visible, subject to attack first. So even in normal times, day laborers face some of the worst exploitation of any workers. Wage theft, dangerous conditions, and more generally precarity. No steady job, no steady boss, no union. Even within labor circles, they face discrimination. I have been mocked for dedicating my life to organizing day laborers because peop, there is a segment of folks in, in our society that sees day laborers as an undesirable individual, those who stand on a sidewalk and turn our you know, neighborhood into, uh, into third world cesspools. That's the language that has been used and day laborers has been stigmatized as people who should not be protected. And you probably guessed where this story is going. In early March, the signs of economic collapse came roaring back. Pablo remembers going to the Pasadena Day Labor Center, an Endlon affiliate where jornaleros go to get jobs and also to organize. At the center, he found a group of 50 workers discussing the virus. They were worried. So we went and checked the guidelines of the federal government, and we found that there was no plan. And then we came to the city of Pasadena to see what the locality was saying about this crisis and how it was being mitigated. And what we realized at that moment was that nobody was in charge. And that we needed to make our own decisions to protect our workers and to protect the customers of the workers and to protect the community. This is Antibody, a three-part series on life and politics under COVID-19 from The Dig and Jacobin Magazine. I'm your host, Daniel Denver. This is episode two, Making Contact. Rent striking against corporate landlords, a tour of Samuel Delaney's favorite public sex spots, and Andrea Longchu on Dungeons and Dragons. But first, Back to Pablo. In the worker center that day, he and the people he was organizing with knew that the pandemic was way bigger than just a health crisis. The economic pandemia is going to be much, much worse, and it's going to impact working people more than anybody else. So this is the time when working people, unemployed people have to organize and fight back. And Endlon has been successfully organizing for 20 years. That day labor center Pablo mentioned earlier, that's part of a network. 65 and 17 states, connecting workers with resources to build power. We make sure that whenever an employer fails to pay, that there is an infrastructure to assist that worker, or if there is an injury at the workplace, that there is, uh, at the very least, some of the measures to mitigate the damage. Endelon has led some of the most radical and militant successful fights against deportation, including Obama's mass deportation campaign, which they played a lead role in curbing. The border and deportations don't stop immigrant workers. They cheapen immigrant labor and divide the working class against itself along lines of race, language, and citizenship. And it took a long time for the U.S. labor movement to accept day laborers as fellow workers. Of course, it's the right thing to do in a moral sense. But 
it's also the right thing to do in the it's in the interest of the entire working class to protect its most vulnerable and exploited segments sense. Because if you isolate the most vulnerable workers farther, then you essentially are telling everybody else it's okay to marginalize this workforce. And what happens is that when you try to improve the standards for everybody else, you can't because the standards for the, uh, the most vulnerable workers are very low. But getting people to really understand that, hear it, can be a challenge. As we were talking about what Enlon is doing in the face of COVID, Pablo told me about this one campaign day laborers had organized in Pasadena for a $15 minimum wage. In 2016, after months of fighting for it, they finally got a measure to the city council. And on the night of the vote, day laborers, who can be so visible in public but are rarely listened to by those in power, showed up to tell their stories. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to reconvene our meeting. We were in the, at the city council here in, in Pasadena. Translation is in progress. So uh, in the middle of the crowd, there, there were probably 150 people uh, giving their testimony. It was a marathon meeting, like five and a half hours long. Local business owners gave testimony against the higher minimum wage. That in the restaurant business, 90% of restaurants fail. Our profit margin by national average, and even in California, average is 3.3%. And in the crowd, there was this guy, one of two brothers who own a bunch of restaurants in the city. High-end restaurants where the, the cheapest meal will cost you at least $25 or $40 for a salad. And as they were all watching the testimony, one of the day laborers walked up to Pablo. Marta Salazar, a restaurant worker and a day laborer, came to me. And she said, Pablo, I know the Smith brother. She'd worked in one of his restaurants. I worked for him for seven years, and I bet you he doesn't even know my name. And Marta decided to testify. She stood in front of the, of the, of the city council's members, and she told them, historically, you have aligned yourself with the employer class. Buenas noches, señores. Otra vez estoy aquí para pedirles que nos apoyen con los 15. Good evening. I'm here once again to ask you to support us. He tenido muchas experiencias en los restaurantes. He trabajado con muchísima gente. I've had a lot of experience at restaurants. I've worked with a lot of people. Y esta, esta gente solo piensa en ellos. No piensa en nosotros los trabajadores. They unfortunately just think about themselves. They don't think about the workers. Para ellos nosotros somos gente que se hoy trabajamos y mañana nos despide. For them, we are the kind of people that we work today and tomorrow we can be fired. Porque no nos dan el valor que nosotros merecemos. No they nos dan la importancia de nuestro trabajo. And they don't give our work the importance it deserves. I want to tell you that I worked with the Smith brothers for seven years in their catering business at the Rose Bowl. And I bet you he doesn't even know my name. Él, él no, él no nos valora. Él no nos, ha, nos da la importancia que nosotros quisiéramos tener para poder vivir. Él dice que no, no puede pagar más, pero realmente son proof. cuatro restaurantes muy importantes que tiene. Side making pizzas. And look at, my, look at my arms. Look how burned they are. Y quisiera que un día ustedes tuvieran esa amabilidad de tocar la mano de un dishwasher, sentirle su mano y ver sus manos como están de blancas de lo quemado del agua, de los trastes Hopefully one day you would take the time of touching the hand of a dishwasher touch the hand of that dishwasher and see what it feels like when you've been burning your hands for so long washing dishes Nuestro trabajo es bien and, importante. and he doesn't even know my name I'm asking you to align with us align with the working people please give us your support with the $15 thank you so much And they won. The measure passed. And many of the council members, that particular testimony, convinced some of those council members that in order to protect, in order to have a better city, workers need to earn more. That's about everyone's well-being. So I think, like, the power of our story, the power of mobilizing, believe me, every time that we use that kind of uh, um, mobilizing power, we win. The $15 minimum wage is set to go into effect on July 1st of this year. But since COVID hit, some local businesses, 
especially restaurants, have been pushing for the city to delay until 2022. We are going to start seeing that as the economy returns. This is when unscrupulous employers take advantage and they abuse the vulnerability of workers. The public health crisis becomes the economic crisis, which becomes the excuse for employers to ramp up exploitation. But Pablo and Endlon will keep mobilizing to fight back. On May 20th, Pablo and the day laborers were back at City Hall. This time, outside, wearing masks, holding signs, and standing six feet apart. Defending not just their own wages, but those of working people across the city. And working people everywhere. That was No Dejes de Luchar by the Day Laborer Band Jornaleros del Norte. You can support day laborers right now with your money at endlon.org. That's N-D-L-O-N dot org. Next up, public intimacy at a moment when even mere public proximity sparks fears of contagion and how much it might matter if we lose the places where we run into strangers. Producer David Goodhertz called up legendary sci-fi novelist and writer Samuel Delaney. The first time a perfect stranger shook up Samuel Delaney's universe, he was 10 years old. I remember, I just remember sitting on the porch of this elderly woman um, and listening to her. And I think her, maybe her husband was there, I'm not sure. The year was 1952. The porch in question was in Phoenicia, New York. And as he sat on the porch, Delaney was listening to the woman tell stories. Oh, and there was music. There was a man, he owned a small farm. He had no team to carry it on. Sing ray, falaf, falaf, falanigo, ray, falaf, falanigo, Young Delaney was more accustomed to apartment stoops than rickety front porches in the woods. He grew up about two hours away from Phoenicia, in Harlem. For elementary school, his parents had sent him to a stuffy, elite private school called Dalton, on the Upper East Side. Dalton billed itself as progressive, but was actually anything but. And the reason there were three black kids in each class was because if the, if the school could prove to the city that it was not excluding blacks, they got a tax break. And so I was there, I and I and the others, and most of us were all, most of the one thing about it is most of the kids, the black kids who went to the school, were, we, were, we were all related to one another. Delaney had friends, but as one of those token black kids, he was always kind of an outsider. And he was also pretty weird. He swallowed all the sci-fi he could get his hands on. He used to stand around in the office of his father's funeral parlor, dictating stories to the secretary. No one at Dalton appreciated his weirdness. But in the summers, Delaney would escape, out to Phoenicia, to a place called Camp Woodland. A place close, close to my heart. <laughs> Woodland was basically the opposite of Dalton. It was a co-ed, racially integrated, lefty sleepaway camp. Gravel roads, squeaky bunk beds, and a very special lake. And there was a big swimming hole uh, called the Ushi Gushi. Uh, <laughs> uh, because when you walked in it, your feet, it was pretty ushy and gushy. The whole point of the camp was to teach kids like Delaney to question the norms of the 50s, get politically engaged, experiment with new ideas, like when they trudge out to the flagpole every morning. 
we all gathered around the flag and said you know, the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, and we had a choice of whether we said under God or not. And I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I think I switched all over, uh, although I was uh, on my way to pretty much to being an atheist. And yes, Woodland was also a place where Delaney started to experiment in other ways. I would play around sexually with guys and girls uh, at Woodland. But what really set Woodland apart was the sound. The music director of the camp, Norman Kasdan, was a professional musicologist, and the staff was absolutely stuffed with amazing musicians. I went to a sleepaway camp in Maryland for nine years, and I never heard anything like this. The voice you heard at the end there, asking what the song meant, yeah, that was Pete Seeger. He used to stop by regularly, even after he was blacklisted, for associating with communists. Now my name is Joe McCarthy, but I'm not the man you think. I dig ditches for a living, and I never was a fink. I dig ditches for a living, I'm as dirty as can be. For the Woodlanders, folk music was an important part of a political education, which is why Norman dreamed up this other adventure for the kids. Hello, everybody. Come, climb on into the truck. We're going to go out and record some uh, music today. And up they'd all go, into the pickup truck and across the hills, to knock on doors, sit next to rocking chairs, and soak in the local lore. So that's how little Delaney ended up on the porch of that old woman that day back in 1952, draped in the sounds of a stranger's life. Oh, Mary, dear, go ask your father. And they would they would sing his songs. And we would record the songs and listen to them and provide an audience for them to sit on their porch and sing to us. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. There was a dark undercurrent to these field trips, though. At the time, a lot of the locals were being pushed off their lands by the construction of reservoirs to feed New York City. The Woodlanders, all these tiny 10 to 12-year-old children, were trying to document lifeways on the verge of disappearing. <laughs> well, that reminds me. How long did you stay on the sled when you were sleigh riding? Oh, it used to take very near half hour sometimes. You'd go right on and on and on. It's just regarding how fast the sleigh went. You can imagine it in the snow. You could start from the, the snow 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 snow. modus operandi of the camp was that we had a lot of interaction with the community. There was a forest fire once, and and everybody in the camp, including myself, you know, went out to help carrying a, a canister of water to put out to help put out the fire forest fire. The kids couldn't stop the reservoirs. They couldn't make state officials care about the damage they were doing. But they could give the soon-to-be-displaced people a platform, a captive audience that would listen to their songs and laugh at their jokes. In these days of indigestion, this was how the Woodland Campers learned the ABCs of solidarity. They weren't being sent out into the hills to gawk at weird yokels. They were going around their neighborhood, learning how to make connections with people who they were already invisibly connected to, just as surely as the Downsville Reservoir was linked to the plumbing system of New York City. There are germs of every kind in any food that you can One of the find. things that um, Woodland did seed in me was a sense of the importance of neighborhood. And I think, and I still think, neighborhoods are very important because neighborhoods are where things start. For some little bug is sure to get you someday. If you have social problems, it is in a neighborhood that you learn uh, what these social problems you have. For some little germ is sure to find you someday. You can't understand who you are without paying attention to the people and places that you touch. Unfortunately, summer couldn't last forever. Fall would come, and Delaney was back to his old life. So long, pickup trucks full of budding folklorists. Hello, subway car. Back down to Dalton. And going between the two 
neighborhoods I've occasionally described as a, as a trip as a, of, of almost ballistic uh, social violence. It went back and forth like this for a few years. Beautiful, enlightening summer at camp, then back to Stuffy Dalton. Swimming in the Yoshigushi, polysexual summer flings, then getting stuck in a classroom where everyone was taught to look and act the same. Life in the city wasn't all bad. And I was a really popular kid. I, people liked me a lot. And I, I knew that I had to be likable. But no matter how many friends Delaney made, he still felt this itch. He missed the music, the trips with Norman, the random people who opened up their houses to him. He missed fooling around with strangers. And eventually, he started going on field trips of his own. I was about 13 years old. And on a sun, one Sunday morning, I just got on the subway and went down to 42nd Street and went to Hubert's Museum. Which was not actually a museum, more like an indoor circus slash peep show, right in the middle of Times Square. Because I heard, I heard 42nd. I didn't know where on 42nd Street all this happened. He wasn't even quite sure what this was yet. I was standing there looking at one of the exhibits and I think somebody was talking, and then I realized that a guy who was a little older than I was, black, another black guy kid, uh, had his hand up against mine, and he moved a finger on top of mine. And I thought, oh, this is what I'm looking for. <laughs> Bingo. I'm at the right place. I was at the right place. I'm at the right neighborhood. <laughs> and the moment he graduated high school, Delaney moved straight down to the East Village. For the next decade, he was in perpetual motion. He got married and separated. Marilyn Hacker, my wife, yeah, what a wonderful poet. Started a commune. The commune was Heavenly Breakfast. Heavenly Breakfast. The commune was also a band. I wanted to go and be someone like Pete Seeger. Then the band and the commune broke up. And we, when we got there, there were chains on the door of the recording studio. Delaney and Marilyn got back together. Andy Warhol had been shot by Valerie Solanas and was it made the front page of the newspaper. And they broke up again. And it was knocked off the next day by the assassination of Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles. And Delaney wrote and wrote and wrote. I'm, I was something of a workaholic. Uh, and may still be, I don't know. Throughout it all, Delaney was still roving around the city. He was exploring and cruising. To, to try the, uh, uh, the trucks. The trucks. Those would be the big rig freight trucks down by the Christopher Street Pier. There was an elevated highway over the west side. And what there was, was underneath the highway was where all these trucks parked. The trucks would park overnight, or sometimes for a couple of days. And they'd leave their backs open. And in the backs of the trucks, uh, guys would con congregate if they were empty and, and have sex. In Delaney's memory, these orgies weren't wild, raucous affairs. Sex at the trucks was a mostly silent and solitary thing. A lot of nights, you'd have to walk along the pier for 40 minutes, straining to hear moans louder than the lapping water and peeking into empty cargo holds in the hopes of finding a couple of guys. But then... As soon as the police came, somebody would give a shout and everybody scattered. You know, and, and, on, a, and on a busy Saturday night, 200 people would scatter. You couldn't see them all at once until they were running away. 200 people. And then one day, in 1963, Delaney decided to try out the Turkish baths down on St. Mark's Place. It was very, very full. Uh, and there were so many people all having sex at the same time, you couldn't see the beds. And, I had, and that's the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And that was a little scary. But also a bit thrilling because he could literally feel his connection to this whole mass of people. In the 50s and in the 40s, you thought of homosexuality was limited to things like bathroom jobs in subways. And they only held one or two people or three people. And, you know, one person would look out at the door and two other people would do something. Uh, so you didn't get a sense that there were a lot of us. Whereas there, suddenly you were beginning to realize, they, hey, there are a lot of us. Yeah, and by us, I mean gay men. 
After all this wandering, it turned out Delaney's favorite cruising spots, the ones that would change the course of his life and career, were back in Times Square, right in the neighborhood that he'd been drawn to as a teenager. The only places that I can remember going regularly were the movies, which seemed much more um, conducive to what I was looking for. In part, this was just a matter of sexual preferences. The theaters around Times Square in the 70s tended to attract people who were into the same stuff Delaney was, mostly casual hand jobs and BJs. You walk in, you figure out what you want to do. You might look around, if it was one of the smaller theaters on 8th Avenue, you might look if there's anybody you know. You know, and say hello or not or what have you, and uh, you jerk them off or, uh, um, or suck them off as the case may be. What was on the screen was heterosexual porn. And in the seats, a whole lot of strangers. Delaney liked that the movie houses had a rotating cast of characters, a carousel of casual acquaintances, familiar faces, and total randos. You had a name for a lot of people, you know, but you maybe only had the first name or a nickname or a name that they had invented, you know, uh, for the situation. If you believed the respectable newspapers at the time, you knew that this little area of Times Square was dangerous, and that the porn theaters were pits of darkness out of which all evil flowed. But that didn't stop all sorts of people from coming to check out the scene. In the theaters, you would find, uh, you, you would find people from every walk of life. By this time, Delaney was becoming known as a successful sci-fi writer, spending more and more time in elite social circles. But in the dim glow of Debbie Does Dallas, he could slip into a kind of interclass carnival. I found people who washed windows on the Empire State Building. I found opera singers. And sure, the vast majority of these interactions began and ended with sex. But many also overflowed into long conversations and even long-term relationships. Uh, I found carpenters. I found, uh, you know, um, I found people who were on remittance of some sort. But... They, they did have one thing. They were interested in what you could find in this, this kind of space. Notice that Delaney said he found these people. That's the same word his old counselor Norman used when describing those field trips they used to take out at Woodland. We have found the music of the Catskill by going around, knocking on doors. Hello, neighbor. How are you on a Sunday afternoon? sitting down with them, singing, talking, exchanging stories. Decades later, Delaney was still living out the lessons he picked up at camp. These strangers are your neighbors, and if you want to understand yourself or your world, you'd better find a way to bump into them. He didn't record the people he met in Times Square, but he did become a kind of bard of the peep shows, a folklorist of 42nd Street. Here he is, reading some memories from a day in one of his favorite theaters, the Capri. Rose was dozing in the ninth row of the balcony of the Capri Porno Theater on 8th Avenue, just below 46th Street, beside Red, one-time pimp, now wino and cracker, a scrawny guy with a medicine ball of dirty red hair, his winter-burned hands alight with the translucent bloat of the permanently undernourished alcoholic. Red was half asleep. He wrote a lot about the theaters. Many of the stories Delaney collected, he published in the 90s in a book called Times Square Red, Times Square Blue. And in that book, Delaney coined a new kind of political keyword, a term to describe the relatively random, largely pleasant interactions that certain kinds of public spaces, including public sex spaces, make possible. Contact. Contact can mean a hand job in the bathroom, but it's also the gossip you share while waiting in line for the movies. If you're stranded after curfew because you've been out protesting police violence all day and a stranger opens up their house to you, that's contact in action. Sometimes, contact brings world-shattering news to your doorstep. I was walking up Avenue C, and somebody came running up the street and said, Martin Luther King's been shot! Usually, though, these encounters are more banal. Contact generates book recommendations, or funny stories, or maybe even a bargain you didn't know you were looking for. 
I can remember a construction guy coming into uh, the uh, place where I got my Xeroxing done uh, at one point and was saying, um, hey, anybody want a wet-dry vacuum cleaner? Um, Ten bucks. What all these examples have in common is the element of surprise. Interacting with strangers is always a little bit unpredictable. It forces us to veer ever so slightly out of our comfortable routines. Contact is the pleasure of the swerve. It doesn't have to be a lasting relation. You know, it, it, it's a relation that is contoured by the things that hold it together. And certain kinds of contact-rich spaces, places like Woodland and the Capri, they bring together people that our social system usually keeps far apart. It can be hard to explain why these contact zones matter to anyone. For real estate developers, they're not exactly profitable. And for leftists, they don't necessarily lead to any sort of radical politics. But they sure as hell matter to Delaney. He's written that these institutions are what made it feasible and also fun for him to live as a gay writer in New York. These places brought him the strangers that sustained him. Until, that is, they all started shutting down. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Probably that the homosexual bathhouses, which everyone knows, are just for the most dirty, vulgar, filthy, bloody uh, occurrences, anal intercourse, and worse, they should be shut down because that is where, according to what little information we have, there's the transmission of the disease. By 95, it was all closed out. That's when I went down and uh, found literally chains around the little box where, from which the tickets were sold. You know how this story ends. New York shut down the St. Mark's bathhouse in 1985 in the name of public health. Ten years later, the city sued the Capri Theater for allowing 150 incidents of, quote, prohibited sexual activity. All of Delaney's old haunts are now just that, haunted spaces. I lost an experience. I lost the ability to have an, I lost the, the, I lost the freedom to have an experience. The official story is that AIDS destroyed these places. That to stop the epidemic and save the gay community from itself, the cities had to crack down on these unsafe places. And while some prominent gay activists did join the crusade against public sex, Delaney says this story is, in his words, Total bullshit. That was a planned redevelopment uh, with the, the, the Disneyfication of Times Square. Uh, basically, the Disney company was the biggest investor. Blaming AIDS or AIDS activists lets the real decision makers off the hook. Delaney says the developers who actually demolished the theaters and the bathhouses didn't care about the gay community any more than the politicians who built the reservoirs near Woodland cared about that neighborhood. When those theaters shut down, I lost all those people that I had had relationships, some of whom were regulars that I had been having contact with regularly every, you know, every week, every two weeks, you know, but I didn't know where to, I didn't know, I didn't even know how to start looking for them. There was something unsettling about listening to all this during the fifth week of quarantine in my parents' house, when I hadn't talked to a stranger in weeks. Of course, coronavirus is not AIDS. But over the next few months, we are going to see a lot more places with chains on their doors. Places that will remain closed permanently. The official story will blame COVID, not capitalism. And we are going to have to decide how to respond. One of the reasons class war keeps going on is because it doesn't often look like war. It's not uh, something that many people necessarily experience as class warfare. How should we measure the value of a bathhouse or a bookstore or a bodega? During the last American plague, Delaney points out, even a lot of well-meaning people accepted that his favorite places basically only mattered to a certain fringe population. This concession always bothered him. I never thought of myself as being marginal. And I, you know, I always thought of myself as somebody whom, in fact, it was part of my um, raison d'etre, my, my, my whole thing. You know, there must be 
somewhere in the United States, another 150,000 people minimum who are basically like me, <laughs> you know, and possibly a good deal more. Delaney is a gay black science fiction writer with a long flowing beard that would make Walt Whitman weak in the knees. I don't think he's betting on the chances that there are 150,000 people out there with that exact constellation of characteristics. But a lifetime spent bumping into strangers has taught him to question certain assumptions about what it means to be basically like someone you don't know. And it's made him wary about the idea that people with certain characteristics ought to be automatically classified as marginal or fringe or far out, as if they were loose threads in the social fabric. As Delaney sees it, Contact fulfills a set of needs that we all have, even if we don't know how to name them yet. Like the need for public intimacy, the need to break out of deadening routines, and the need to experiment with new identities or even new categories of existence. The need to connect across classifications. Contact is a label that's supposed to help us map this whole neglected neighborhood of needs to help us swerve into neighbors who may not look, vote, pray, or fuck the way that we do, but who are, like us, looking for spaces where they can feel fulfilled. At the moment, there aren't a lot of ways to meet those needs. This kind of thing that you and I are doing are about what I have. You know, this is, this is, this is, this is most of my social, much of my social life, especially recently, has been carried on in, at you know, at the, at the level of Skype or Zoom. Delaney says, it's just not the same. It's hard to say what's going to happen next. After all, this past week we've seen protesters around the world literally risking their lives because they were moved by the murder of a man they'd never met. And if you mute the screaming pundits, if you listen to the hum between slogans, you can hear something truly remarkable. Hundreds of thousands of people talking to strangers, sharing stories, and sometimes even songs. The streets are alive with a sound of contact. That was David Goodhertz. In these days of indigestion, it is often time to question of what to eat or what to leave alone. There are microbes and bacillus, they have different ways to kill us, and in time they always claim us for their own. For some little bug is sure to get you someday, some little germ will creep you in. When he gets into your gizzard, if you lose him, you're a wizard. For some little germ is sure to find you someday. When cold storage vaults I visit, I can only... By some estimates, about a third of American renters didn't pay in April. COVID has shown how years of rising rents, amid stagnating wages and the increasing financialization of real estate, left countless American families unable to make rent after missing just a couple paychecks. It's a decades-long history with global dimensions. Reporter Sophie Kazakov has the story of one couple in one house in Oakland. Eva Jimenez remembers when she saw her husband Ramon's house for the first time. She noticed one thing in particular. He do something really special with the walls. I don't know how this word call it, but I really like it. It looks like... Uh... Marble. This was back when they first started dating. She'd known Ramon for a few years by then, knew he helped build beautiful houses all over Oakland and around the Bay Area as a construction worker. Sometimes he'd get home improvement ideas on the job at the houses he worked on. He'd recreate them at home, like the marbly finish on the walls. Eva liked the way he decorated, too. He have a good taste, so he, you know, he have a nice painting in the kitchen, he remodeling. Well, that's kind of nice. Ramon had put in so much work because he owned the house himself. After years of renting in Oakland, he'd bought the house in 2004. But a few years later, at the peak of the recession, Ramon lost his construction job. Like so many working-class homeowners, he'd been sold a risky mortgage. And then, once the crisis hit, he couldn't get refinancing. 
because um like you say he works in construction so he say everything goes oh no 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 job no nothing ramon didn't speak with us for this story but eva remembers how he talked about that time and he say he he like been you know trying to survive on that year like no work no money no can no income so he say he can handle it he lost the house and then the private equity firm colony american swooped in Colony American was one of a bunch of Wall Street investors that bought up houses like Ramon's. While most Americans struggled to keep up with their bills during the recession, these global firms had the capital to buy foreclosed homes. And the federal government, which backed many of the distressed mortgages, eagerly auctioned them off wholesale to the investment firms. There was a moment of crisis, and government didn't know what to do, and it felt like everything was falling apart, kind of similar to today. That's Maya Abood. She's an urban planner, and she spent years researching the single-family home industry. But the response was to do the easiest thing, which was to try and create a stable market, so, so they say, by incentivizing large corporate owners to begin buying up single-family homes. By 2016, private equity firms had amassed an inventory of 200,000 single-family homes in the U.S., creating an altogether new category of mega-homeowner. And Maya explains that companies like Colony American realized that rather than sell the properties, they could rent them out. They could profit off an emerging class of renters, People who had lost their homes and were now frozen out of the housing market as credit tightened in the wake of the crisis. And so we see families um, lose their home, lose their equity, lose their housing stability, and then be renting from corporate landlords that have often received either direct assistance from the federal government or various forms of tax assistance from the government. Wall Street was now a landlord. And then these same companies are accountable to shareholders, to bondholders, and face a lot of pressure to raise rents, to evict tenants, um, and to really operate in a way that maximizes profit above everything else. When Ramon lost his house, he didn't have anywhere else to go. Rents were skyrocketing all over the Bay Area. Plus, he loved the house. He didn't want to lose all the work he'd put into it. So he asked Colony American to rent the house back to him, the same house he used to own. And a few years later, Eva moved in. It was a full house with Eva's two kids and Ramon's two kids, but they made it work. It seemed, for a while, like it could still feel like their house. But then things started changing. They start, um, you know, raising the prices. Oh, like the first rent increase that was like 300. At the same time, Eva says that the landlord, which was now managing thousands of properties in Northern California, neglected basic repairs. And they don't fix anything. They don't even, no one can to see how the house condition, no one's coming. I live in here for five years and I never see some people or one people like, oh, you know what, I just can't to see if you need something or nothing. I don't see anything. Eva says that when she and Ramon asked their landlord to clean up the black mold spreading above the shower, they never heard back. We asked a press person at the company, now called Invitation Homes, for comment. She said even Ramon denied the company access to the house when it tried to make repairs. But either way, these types of problems are common for tenants of Wall Street landlords. A 2015 survey of California tenants found that 20% of respondents said these landlords did not perform requested repairs, and that 40% reported having done their own repairs within the year. 13% reported serious problems like mold, insect and rodent infestations, and bad plumbing. For Eva and Ramon, it went on for years. And two years ago, when Invitation Homes tried to jack up the rent again by $400, Eva and Ramon refused to pay. We decide don't pay it. So we say, oh no, that's too much. Then they got a call from Invitation Homes offering them thousands of dollars to move out entirely. Invitation Homes told us that they needed the house empty in order to make some repairs. 
Eva and Ramon suspected that the company wanted to sell the house. They said they were staying, but the company started bringing people to come look at the house anyway. Ramon was out working most of the time, so Eva would be home alone with her new baby. They, they came to in like four different cars, parking like, you know, outside, and someone like, you know, a couple, someone like a single person, and you just come with the phones, you know, recording everything and watching everything. And the guys, oh, you know, this house is nice, blah, blah, blah. They kept coming, day after day. Invitation homes would bring people to look at the house. I just feel so uncomfortable, and I just, you know, I was like, my baby had like not even a year. (laughs) And I just feel, I just start quiet, and I just feel so little. (laughs) But the hardest part for Eva was noticing changes in Ramon. They'd always talked about projects they wanted to do around the house, like converting their closet into a laundry room or redoing the bathroom. But Ramon never followed through anymore. He didn't see the point. But he said, even like told him, oh, why are you don't doing this? No, I can't do anything because it's not mine. The house, the street, the neighborhood. Eva says their grasp on all of it felt increasingly precarious. For rent signs were popping up all along the block. Their working class neighbors started moving out and wealthier people, mostly white, started moving in. I just want my kids growing like, you know, happy and one place. I don't want to, you know, move it here, there, everywhere. No, I just want to be in one place and that's it. We are we are not like thinking out like, oh, there's money. No, we're, you know, humans. So we have lives, we have, you know, kids, family. And that's why we tend to, to keep the house. Not for us, you know, this for our kids or for them, they us. By the time Eva and Ramon were watching this parade of people come through their house, Ramon had been living in it for 14 years. Half of those years, he was fighting not to lose it as predatory lenders were profiting off his risky mortgage. The other half, he and Eva were fighting with a landlord that was raising rents and trying to get them out. The same pattern was playing out in cities across the country, affecting hundreds of thousands of families. And the whole time, As years of equity in communities of color collapsed and banks transformed the single-family home into a global financial asset that could be securitized, bundled, and sold, Eva and Ramon stayed. In the same house. Same furniture. Same marbly paint job in the living room. Same conversation about home improvement projects they'd do if they got it back. On May 1st of this year, Eva and Ramon didn't pay rent. Instead, they piled into the car with their kids and drove downtown to join a protest calling for a mass rent strike. That was a long, long, long caravan with the cars, with the people and motorcycles, and the bicycles too. In this moment of crisis, the past decade of corporate ownership was coming to a head. The basic need for homes was incompatible with those homes being treated as investment assets. Eva and Ramon both lost work during the pandemic. They actually had money saved up to pay rent in May, but they decided not to, in solidarity with millions of renters who suddenly couldn't. But we had the money. We just trying to, uh, you know, support everyone. This wasn't Eva and Ramon's first protest. Eva's been working with a housing justice organization called ACE, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, for a few years. Back when Invitation Homes started bringing people to the house, She and others renting from the company would drive up to the corporate office in Sacramento to protest outside. She realized that her and Ramon's situation wasn't unique. You know, they don't fix anything. They don't do anything for us. They just only want money, money, money. And then this year, even Ramon started talking with Ace about how to get their house back. Not renting, but owning. The solution, the Oakland Community Land Trust. The nonprofit could buy the house and the land it sits on from invitation homes. Eva and Ramon would take out a mortgage on the house itself, while the land trust would keep ownership of the land. If Eva and Ramon wanted to move somewhere else, they'd sell the house to the land trust, which would make sure that the next owner was another working class family. 
The threat of a mass foreclosure crisis amidst the pandemic has created an opening for the idea of community land trusts. They're taking hold on a bigger scale, particularly in cities like Oakland, where there are thousands of corporate-owned properties. And the Oakland CLT has had some big wins. After a group of Oakland moms was evicted from a vacant West Oakland house in January, the CLT negotiated with the owner, another corporate landlord, and bought the house. Yvonne Ramon didn't know if Invitation Homes would agree to sell their house to the Oakland CLT. There was a lot to navigate between the CLT's negotiations with Invitation Homes and the financing. They filled out the paperwork in the evenings and tried not to get their hopes up. But sometimes they let themselves slip back into that same old conversation. Oh, we've just been talking like if we can get it for a buy the land trust, maybe we can do some um, little things, maybe painting the house for outside. Yeah. What color would you want to paint the outside, do you think? I'm not sure. <laughs> because I can, I, you know, I'm my favorite color is purple, but, you know, it's kind of, I don't taste that. <laughs> no, maybe something not too crazy, but um, probably something like um, yellow or green. <laughs> After I talked to Eva for this story, they got the good news. Invitation Homes had agreed to sell the house. The CLT will buy it next month, and it'll be back in Eva and Ramon's hands soon after. They're still waiting for all the paperwork to be signed. But Eva told me that Ramon's already working on a design for the new bathroom. Reporter Sophie Kasikov. If you don't know, I have another podcast, a weekly interview show called The Dig. This past week, I did an episode with Kathy Cohen, Jason Perez, and Malika Jabali about the massive uprisings around the country against police brutality. You can check out The Dig at thedigradio.com and support us with your money at patreon.com slash the dig. We still have a bunch of exciting stories left to share in this series. The aftermath of New York's COVID peak in a Bronx hospital, Chenjirai Kumanyika on Amazon warehouse workers, and the Siberian anarchist, Darwinist, anti-Tsarist history of mutual aid. Those contributions are what make antibody and everything The Dig does possible. Next up, our last story of the episode. The coronavirus certainly ended our social lives as we had known them, but it didn't end human sociality. Writer Andrea Longchu has long been an avid player of Dungeons & Dragons. Indeed, she is a dungeon master. She has been playing D&D a lot in the past two months, and she has some thoughts. Okay, hi, I am your dungeon master. We will be playing this adventure, The Cavern of Draconis. Whoa. I understand Neil has his own There's an episode of the show Community where the characters play Dungeons and Dragons. They're trying to cheer up a depressed classmate. As Abed, the dungeon master, hands out character sheets to each of the players, Troy, who's played by Donald Glover, asks, Shouldn't there be a board or some pieces or something to Jenga? No, no, this is a role-playing game. It takes place entirely in our collective imagination. Ooh. I tell the story, and you make choices in the story. Okay, let's begin. You were all standing on a country road. Legend has it the evil dragon Draconis... Now, this isn't entirely accurate. There are things to Jenga. Dice, character sheets, battle maps... The fanciest games of D&D feature detailed maps covered in hand-painted miniatures. But the core game is very simple. There's a group of players, usually three to seven, working together to tell a story out loud. And then there's a dungeon master, or DM, who acts as the narrator and referee. Players tell the DM what they want to do. The DM asks the players to roll some dice. If they roll well, they succeed. If not, they fail. Either way, the story progresses. No matter how many rules you pile on top of this, and D&D has no shortage of rules, that central sequence will always be there, like the DNA in every cell. Choice, refracted by chance, resulting in change. Let me give you an example. You're a half-elf ranger. You're chaotic good which means you have a strong sense of right and wrong, but you don't put much stock in laws or social norms. You just got out of the Imperial Army a few months ago, thank the gods, and you've been drifting from hamlet to hamlet here in the Westlands, 
working odd jobs and stealing what you can. You find yourself nursing a mug of ale in a seedy tavern rumored to be haunted by the ghost of an angry drunk. You notice a couple of dwarves playing dragon chess in the corner, a human barmaid flirting with a sleazy troubadour, and a well-dressed tiefling man slumped over the bar, his twisted horns resting in a shallow pool of vomit while his forked tail hangs limply off his stool. Strange. Don't see many tieflings in these parts. The troubadour begins to play. You take a drink. Now you tell your dungeon master, that's me, what you'd like to do. You're light on coin, so you decide to pickpocket the drunk tiefling. Sure thing, I say, and I ask you to make a sleight of hand check, which you do by rolling a 20-sided die, called a d20, and adding your plus two dexterity modifier to the result to account for that elven agility on your mother's side. The higher the roll, the better the outcome. With your modifier, that's an 18. I say, feigning inebriation, you stagger over to the bar and accidentally spill the rest of your ale on the patron. As he starts awake, you burst into a slurry, tearful apology, using the confusion to deftly slip the purse from his belt. The tiefling man mutters something incomprehensible before sliding unconscious back into his own sick. Now that's a good roll. On a four, things go a little differently. I say, your boots clatter on the tavern's dirty floor as you make a beeline for the barfly, a little more drunk than you'd realized. Clumsily, you paw at the fat pouch of coin at the tiefling's waist. Money, you happily announce to the room. The devil man's tail whizzes into the air as he spins around to face you, eyes burning with the fire of the nine hells. He reaches for his blade. Okay, I am a half-orc paladin named Brock. I'm big, I'm green, I think I'm green. I have a lot of really heavy armor and weapons. In the past, I was a mercenary soldier that kind of, you know, went across the land with a group of uh, marauders who, you know, general raping and pillaging and doing bad things for money. This is my friend Ariel. She edits the magazine Jewish Currents, but more importantly, she's a player in the campaign I started DMing back in February. Now, with COVID, we're playing twice a week over Zoom. And I think at some point I became very disillusioned with that, and I've been on the path to good from then on. And I don't even know if I want to say this, but like, you know, like maybe some of this is like all of my guilt at having been like a young Zionist or something. (laughs) I don't know. I wanted to talk to Arielle because, honestly, I really love the way she plays the game. And because she was actually pretty skeptical when I first asked her about playing D&D, which, to be clear, she knew nothing about at the time. I had no idea what it was. I thought it was for boys, first of all. But I also just thought that... I, I feel like I identify as not clever. That's my identity. And I just felt like there was no way I was going to be able to play this game that was about role-playing. Like, I can't even get dressed up on Halloween. It just seemed impossible. Ariel's selling herself a bit short. Last winter, she was over at my apartment for dinner, and she ended up thumbing through the player's handbook, which is like the D&D Bible, or maybe the D&D Torah. Actually, there's a bunch of books. Anyway, within minutes, Ariel had declared, unprompted, that she wanted to be a half-orc cleric of Groomsh. Groomsh, of course, being the god of orcs. Though ultimately she went with the paladin class, which is a kind of holy warrior. These days, Ariel takes D&D really seriously. In fact, I ended up writing a bespoke side quest just for her and two other players to help her work out what kind of oath she would take on her long path to righteousness. I think that the two oaths that we were talking about were 
the oath of redemption, which is like a more merciful and peacekeeping oath, or the oath of vengeance, which is more oriented towards meeting out violent justice to people who are evil. And it ended with a very dramatic confrontation with some orcs and then with an angel. But there was a tiefling lady who kind of betrayed us and we watched her kill her sister, but who I had also had a bit of a love affair with. And so I had to decide basically like what we were going to do with her. And actually like I, you know, I'm like still not really sure I made the right decision. (laughs) I chose the Oath of the Redeemer, which is the more peaceful paladin. But I'm kind of like, I don't know, might have been more fun to be a murderer. I kind of sometimes play back decisions that I've made in the game and I'm thinking like, would Brock have made that decision actually? Like who was making that decision? Was I making it or was Brock making it? Was it the wrong decision? In fact, I've been asking myself a lot of questions like, am I lawful good? Is (laughs) Is that my orientation in life or something? you're sort of constrained in the same way that you are constrained in the world, just by, like, the laws of physics and by what is going on around you and who the other people are. And you sort of have to move through that world in the same way you move through any world. In D&D, players work together to create a world through imagination. That's what the social is a kind of make-believe that lets you transcend the crushing solitude of being a person. Under capitalism, this make-believe is usually treated like a natural resource. Workplaces are always trying to convert the little worlds that workers build for themselves into profit. Right now, a lot of those worlds are being cut out by Zoom and other so-called productivity tools, leaving behind only the naked imperative to produce value for the economy. Whereas, and maybe this is counterintuitive, D&D thrives over Zoom. My campaign has only gotten better since social distancing began. I think that's because D&D doesn't take the social for granted. The rules are very explicit. Every player has a responsibility to imagine a shared world. In fact, that's the point of the game. To approach the social not as an unlimited raw material, but as a formidable task of great importance that will be completed or not by a group of plucky companions working together. A quest, if you will. That's the secret of D&D. The game might be high fantasy, but the relationships between the people who play, those are real. And I don't mean real in a fictional sense, like how Frodo Baggins is real from the perspective of Frodo Baggins. I mean, absolutely, unimpeachably, if you prick us, do we not bleed, real. The players in my game haven't just fought goblins and saved villages. They've also scored drugs, listened to music, gone shopping, adopted pets, all within the game. They've dined and dashed, they've gotten thrown in prison. They've crashed parties, gotten drunk, kept secrets from each other. They've had terrible arguments. And sometimes they've done nothing at all. At the end of the day, they've been spending time. I mean that in a technical sense, not clock time, but time as the minimal unit of the social relation. Time as the smallest thing it's possible to share with someone else. That kind of time doesn't just happen. It's got to be summoned the way fantasy characters might summon a god. They draw pentagrams on the floor in chalk. They consult ancient tomes and winding scripts. The hour approaches. They hold their breath. Can I ask you a question? Of course. Do you feel like DMing is something you do for yourself or for us? I mean, it seems so labor-intensive. I feel like it's like a gift that you give us, and so I kind of wonder how it feels 
for you. It does feel like that. It feels like a gift that I give you. It's, I mean, it's really good for my brain. So I was like, this is my ticket out of depression. But it's weird because like it's a ticket that only works if like a bunch of other people also take the train or whatever the analogy is. Yeah. I'm glad that it feels like a gift. It definitely does. I mean, especially now, like I really wasn't excited about playing on Zoom. And actually, like now it feels pretty perfect. When I like think back on this weird quarantine time, I'm also going to think back on playing D&D. One ghoul and three Sturges remain. Brock, it is your turn. I'm going to hit the other ghoul uh, with my great axe. Come on. Ooh, natural 20. Natural 20 hits. That means you are going to roll 3d12. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, you have no idea what I just rolled. 32 damage. Holy shit. Wow. Brock, you take your great axe, you raise it above your head, and in one gargantuan motion, you bring it down, it crashes through the ghoul's skull. That was Andrea Longchu. Antibody is produced by Liza Yeager and Mitchell Johnson. Our theme music is by Jeffrey Brodsky, and our artwork is by Alex Hainsworth. In this episode, we used a D&D soundscape by Michael Gelfie. Special thanks to our regular dig team, Alex Lewis, Julia Rock, Zachary Nin, Theoria Francos. You can follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and subscribe to both this show and The Dig wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is huge. We'll be back next week with the last episode in the series.